9 o'clock, 0900. Let's go ahead and get started. Thank you for being here so early in the morning to listen to me chat about the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> I'm going to open in prayer. It's quite okay to walk to your seats while I'm praying. Don't walk with your eyes closed or anything. Lord, thank you for the time um, that we have to gather here uh, openly um, and fellowship with each other to discuss your word, to study, study about who you are, what you have done for us. Um, and I just pray that as we uh, study the word, uh, regardless of what we're studying, Lord, that we would take it into a heart that it would cause us to grow um, and that we could be uh, live a more um, honoring and glorifying life. Amen. Last week we started on the book of Hebrews and I did kind of a, a basic introduction to the book. Uh, and since I only have seven weeks left, you know, I'm not getting through every chapter in every week. So this week... What I wanted to do is we're going to move through the book, um, hopefully in the next 45 minutes, but I may extend it to next week. But now we're going to set, I'm going to kind of create an observational overview of the book instead of just, you know, we did an introduction, kind of talked about what the purpose is, who remembers what the purpose of Hebrews is? What's the purpose of Hebrews? Anybody remember? That's right. So it's preparing, it's, it's getting the Hebrews to look past the law, right, because it's about to go away, right? The, the ability to participate in the law and its um, cultic practices are going are gonna to be gone, right? So that means if the temple's gone, there's no need for the priesthood. Uh, you can't do sacrifices. And if you can't hold up one part of the law, you really can't hold up all the law. Um, it's all going to come basically um, falling down, right? And Hebrews was written around 62, 67 AD, and then the temple is destroyed when? When was the temple destroyed? 70 AD, yeah. And it was destroyed by Titus, right? Uh, and according to, but according to Josephus, Titus tried to stop it. It was some um, overly exuberant um, soldiers who went in uh, and started. They were angry with the Jews because remember there was a rebellion that started, a uh, Jewish rebellion that started around uh, 66 AD by the zealots. Uh, the most famous zealot being who's the most famous zealot? Jewish zealot. He would be the second most famous. Judas. Hey, if somebody said Judas, I didn't hear you, right? But Judas was a zealot. Anyways, the zealot started to kind of a, churning things up into a frenzy, and eventually Rome uh, got tired of the, the terrorist attacks, if you will, um, in their view. They got tired of the attacks, and so they, um, Domitian, the father of Titus, sent his son in to solve the problem. Right. And now they're no longer able to participate in the legal practices set up by Moses. Okay? So that's the basic overview or introduction to the book. So what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of move through and do a, 
a moderate level overview of the book, observational overview, and then we'll circle back to the beginning again and I'll hopefully start putting the analytical pieces together. I'm trying to avoid any interpretive conclusion discussion. This student says we can't really go verse by verse. It's kind of be kind of be a, 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 a cycle, each each cycle building on the, the previous one. Um, we did read the opening of Hebrews because I think the opening kind of sets the foundation for Paul's discussion. So let's look at the opening again uh, briefly. Uh, but it says, After God spoke long ago in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through him who he created the world. The Son is the radiance of his glory and the representation of his essence, and he sustains all things by his powerful word, so that when he has accomplished cleansing for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Thus he became so far greater than the angels as he has inherited a name superior to theirs. Now, last week you didn't read that verse. Right? I, I paused. Um, I stopped at the end of verse 3. <clears throat> so Paul makes these, the author, right, or Paul, makes these statements uh, about Christ and he's, he's already making comparisons, right? So really kind of the first comparison that, that, that Paul makes between Christ uh, or with Christ is the prophets. And what did prophets do? What did prophets do? I mean, if you were to, if you were to distill, distill it down, what were they, yeah, but what were they doing? They were giving God's revelation, right? They were, they were giving God's word. And they would, it would usually start with what phrase? Thus says the Lord. Right? So the prophets ran around speaking the word of God. Okay? And so the first comparison that, that the author of Hebrews makes is between Jesus and prophets. And what does it say that, that God has done through Jesus? Right? In verse 2 it says, In these last days he has spoken to us in a son. Right, so he is. The first comparison is with prophets. The next comparison we have here is angels. Okay, now what the term angel? What, what is that? Messenger. messenger. Right. So we have we have another messenger. Okay. So you could you could distill prophets. You could describe them also as messengers. Right. A messengers who carry specific kind of messages. But angels are also messengers. And so God, Jesus is compared to the angels as well. And what does it say about Jesus in comparison to the angels? It says he's better. Yeah, so he's higher, he's better. And then later on in the next section, it says, What angel has God called his son? Right. So starting in verse 5, For which angel has God ever said, You are my son, today I have fathered you. <clears throat> so out of the gate... Paul is basically saying, look, so with our understanding of the purpose in mind, right? As you, if you read, you read the whole book and you can kind of say, okay, so I understand what the purpose is. And so out of the gate, the author of Hebrews is saying, Christ is better than the prophets and Christ is better than the angels, right? So if the, if he's better as a messenger, right? Because he, he brings a better message, 
That's what he's doing. And there's only one person who can carry this message, and that's Christ. So we have it right out of the gate, we have this contrast. Now, the rest of the sections of Hebrews is basically that same contrast, but against different, say, components or elements of what you might call the mosaic, the, the law of God. <clears throat> so who's the greatest prophet before Jesus? Moses, right? <clears throat> so let's skip down. Well, so Christ is better than the angels, right? The angels are messengers of the Lord. Um, they, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They not comforted, they uh, ministered. Thank you, John. Thank you. They, they ministered God's word, um, and they were the <clears throat> vessels by which sometimes the word of God came to, to man. Uh, let's go to verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation? <clears throat> so there's a sense of lack of completion when it came to, say, the messages, the messages of the prophets and the messages of the angels. But when, you get, when you, we get to Christ, not only is he better, but one of the reasons... Well, he is better. But one of the reasons why he is better is we, uh, things are, we, have, complete, we have a complete message. <clears throat> therefore, and this is the first of uh, many therefores that go through the whole book. There's 14 therefores. And by, by the way... Uh, if you read through this book, uh, you've put it in its historical context, right, right around 62 uh, A.D., and whether it be uh, Paul or possibly a, a Barnabas or Apollos, okay, they all would have been familiar with gr some form of Greek thought at this time. And I think, you know, Acts kind of demonstrates that Paul is pretty familiar with Greek thought. Now, one of the things that the Greeks, you might say, they didn't say develop logical thinking, rational thinking, but they certainly um, gave it a lot of thought. Uh, one of the things they came up with uh, was what we call deductive reasoning, right? Deductive reasoning is where you go from a general premise to a specific instance, and based on those two premises, the general and the specific, you have a conclusion. Right? And then you can stretch, you can, you can build these syllogisms to basically create an argument. That's how you, that's how you, classic, the, that's how you classically create an argument. Premise one, premise two, conclusion. And now that conclusion itself can also be the premise, either a general principle or a specific statement, for another premise that builds on the argument. I say that because Hebrews is structured very much like that. Okay, the first, and some premises are assumed, so it's not like Paul is stating, here's my premise one, here's my premise two, here's my conclusion. Some stuff is assumed. But the very first premise of his argument um, for you need to move away from the law is what? Christ is better, right? He's a better messenger. He has been exalted. He sits on the, the right hand of God. Right? So everything kind of flows from this general reality 
that Paul is about to make, right? So when in, in, um, Burke made a good point last week. As he's trying to get the mental shift, right, the shift away from the traditions of the fathers, they're, they're, it's, it shouldn't be seen as an abandonment. They're not abandoning the traditions of their fathers. They're, they're actually moving to the next, well, revealed step, the next logical step, which is Christ. Okay? <clears throat> so in chapter 2, uh, the author introduces what becomes a, re- uh, a repetitive concept, and that's the idea of faith. So it's here, here he introduces the idea of faith in relationship to uh, into Christ. It says, therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Right? So what is it that anybody has faith in? Unless you are um, the disciples and Paul and if 500 other people, right? So you are very, very select, small group of people. What is it, when you have faith, what is it you have faith in? You have faith in the word about Christ, right? You have faith in Christ, but you have faith about the word about Christ. I have faith that this word that is before me is the word of God, and it communicates the truthful things about Christ. I've never seen the risen Christ. Maybe some of you in here have, but I'm not operating under that experience, right? I'm operating under faith, right? The hope in things that are not seen, okay? And the audience, the the recipients of this this book, they, they haven't experienced this either. Now, they might have secondhand witnesses who are still alive who they can talk to, right? Because there were 500, and they're like, man, I saw... I saw the risen Christ. He appeared to me out in a field or whatever. Okay. Um, But they don't have actual experience. So they're going off of the word of somebody else. Okay. And, and Paul or the author, sorry, begins to, to build this um, contrast between the law and faith as far as what is sufficient for our salvation right here as well. Right. As he's beginning the uh, Jesus is, He's better than the prophets, right? So he's better than the angels, i.e. He's, he's a better messenger in, in large part because he carries a better message. And therefore, pay close attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. So what is it that you've heard? Pay attention to it because you don't drift away. Because what it is that you believe in, that is the thing that you want to hold fast to. And Paul repeats that idea, um, I want to say at least 10 times in the book of Hebrew. And he, he'll... He'll, re- he'll rephrase it in different ways. Hold fast, hold firm, stand confident, right? Stand confident to the faith, hold fast to the faith, that you, to, to that which you've heard. Uh, verse 2, so if the, if the message spoken through the angels pro- proved to be so firm that every violation or disobedience received its just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If it was just communication through the Lord and was... It was first communicated through the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. While God confirmed their witnesses with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Okay, so you have Christ better than the angels, Christ better than the prophets. Now, the greatest prophet um, is Moses. If we, we jump down 
Jump down to chapter 3. Therefore, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, partners in a heavenly calling, take note of Jesus. Now, here the author um, calls Jesus a couple things. He says, take note of Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess, who is faithful to the one who appointed him as Moses was also in God's house. Now, when I studied Hebrews, like this is the first, I, I, I didn't realize that Paul had ever been, or that Jesus had ever been called an apostle. This is the first time I was exposed to this. And I was, you know, I looked at the Hebrew, and like, or not Hebrew, but the Greek, I'm like, well, this is the same word that, um, you know, the disciples eventually are called. It's the same Greek word that's used for apostle, right? Apostolus or whatever, right? This, and Jesus is now described as an apostle. So, right, generally, when we talk about the office of apostle, apostle big A, we, we, an apostle is described or defined as, as a, somebody who saw the risen Lord and was specifically selected to go out and teach, right? So we usually have, you know, there could be discussions about how many apostles there are, but you have the original 12 disciples, Judas died, so you're down to 11 disciples who saw the risen Christ, and then later they cast lots to fill so they could get back to 12, and then Paul is called an apostle, so sometimes you say, was there 12 apostles or is there 13 apostles? Well, maybe there's 14 apostles, right? So, no, what I'm saying here is he's called an apostle because he is a, not because he saw himself risen, that would be kind of silly, right? But because he is a messenger, okay? So, Jesus Um, you might say he is the great apostle because he is the first one who came. He gave the message of the kingdom of God. And then right here, it also calls him a high priest. The job of the high priest was to... What was that? What did the high priest do? Put the Senate man before God. What's that? Put the Senate man before God. Right. And what were some of his duties for the high priest? He did the sacrifice, right? He, 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 he was one of the main components of the uh, um, administration of the Mosaic Covenant, right? So the law that the, you might say, the national law that the Israelites lived under, one of the primary administration, administrators of that law was, was the high priest, right? He had specific, well, you had the priesthood, you know, they had certain duties, and then you had the high priest, he had certain duties that only he could do, like going into the Holy of Holies, right? Um, one time a year. So here, Jesus is called an apostle. He's called a priest. And he's connected to Moses, as Moses was, was also in God's house. And it says here, for he, uh, verse 3 says, For he has come to deserve greater glory than Moses. So he's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. And he's better than Moses, right? He's superior, okay? He's superior to Moses. Now, this is an important idea, important concept to a Hebrew at this particular time, right? Moses is the great and mighty prophet, okay? And if you're going to give up Moses, you, gotta, you can't just give him up for, you know, an athlete, 
right? You, if you're giving up Moses, you better be giving up Moses for something better, right? <clears throat> and it, it, Mo, if Mo, Moses is the great prophet of the Lord, Moses, what went before? I said, what went with Moses as a validation? What's that? Signs and miracles, right? And we saw very briefly, and you know, we didn't cover this in detail, in uh, beginning of chapter 2, right? Um, While God confirmed their witnesses with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? So the message goes out with signs and wonders. I mean, in, in kind of a side note, if you look at the, the biblical history, there really aren't a lot of miracles. Um, and, where, and where the miracles take place, they're, they're kind of really condensed around a few major events, Right, so the biggest one being the the Exodus. Right, there's tons of miracles going on. You you could call the plagues really miracles. Right, so you have the Exodus, and then you have the ministry, death of Christ, and the ministry of the apostles. Right, Th- those are really you can find obviously you can find miracles outside of that, but those are uh, it's very dense. Very those two areas are very packed with miracles. Side note. So Christ is better than the prophets. He's better than the great prophet Moses. He's superior to the angels. So he's a superior messenger, right? <clears throat> and he, in, in a certain way, he is a kind of Moses. Jesus is. He, in the sense that, you know, they're, they're both put in God's house. So it's not like Moses is sitting. The, the argument isn't that Moses has been kicked out, Right? It is that, no, Jesus is in the same house that Moses is, but he's better. He is the, he's the next step. He is superior. Verse 5 says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, right? You're not going to kick out a faithful servant to testify to things that would be spoken. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. We are of his house if, in fact, we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope that, that we take pride in. Um, let's check my time here. Okay, so the next thing, after prophets and angels and the man himself, until now, Moses, okay, is kind of the, is the Sabbath, or the Sabbath rest. Um, the, the Jews were, well, all of, all of creation, in a certain sense, was promised a Sabbath rest, but the Jews were promised uh, a Sabbath rest. And they were told that this rest was going to be found, or at least maybe they, could, they, they thought, and there's some correction that takes place here. Um, some of them thought that this rest would, take, would be in the promised land. Uh, but that it didn't happen, right? Because they were in the promised land. Would, the first thing they had to do was fight for 14 years. Then what they have to do? Keep fighting, Right? Because they didn't follow God's law, they didn't wipe out all their enemies like they were supposed to. Okay, they're like, oh, we, you know, we're a little tired. Let's stop fighting. And that was a mistake. Um, and so they basically fought, and they fought, and they fought for fifteen hundred years. Okay, and then they were crushed by the Romans, and then dispersed. Right. So for fifteen hundred years, they were in turmoil. It doesn't sound very restful. Now. This is not to say that there weren't like a year, a few years or some moments of peace. And there were moments of peace in that time where um, they had a good ruler and 
God, when, you know, even when they went into battle, they would win their battles because God fought for them. They had bountiful produce from the land. This is not to deny those times. <clears throat> but, um, before, as they were entering into the promised land, something happened right before they went into the promised land the first time. Something happened. What happened? The first time. That'd be the second time. Well, that would have been a thing. That's not the thing I'm looking for. It's, so, there you go. Right. So, was it, uh, if I can remember this from Moana, from all you wanted people, it was like 10 were bad and 2 were good? Is that how it went? Yeah. Yeah. So I remembered half of one of the lyrics. Okay. So, the, the children of Israel were about to go into the land. And what I find hilarious is they had just witnessed the terrifying power of God that he brought down on the Egyptians, the nation, and then on their military, okay, at the crossing of the Red Sea. And then at the base of the mountain, which they wouldn't even go up because they were terrified of God's power. And then on God's anger, when Moses came down and caught them worshiping a false idol. Right? So it's almost like every weekend, they had a, there was one attraction, and that attraction was God demonstrating his power. And then they get to the prom, and the, you know, as they traveled uh, across wherever it was they traveled, whether it be the Sinai Peninsula, somewhere in Arabia, Saudi Arabia, depending on where you think um, uh, the Mount Sinai is. Okay, um, So the, all that time they traveled to get to the borders of the Promised Land, they were fed by God. They went through different uh, turmoils. They were, they were all healed by God, right? The, the snake, and there's a long list. They get to the border. 12, size, 12 got, spies go in. 10 come out with a... With a, uh, they, well, I shouldn't say they come out with different reports. They all come out with the same report, right? But 10 of them have one conclusion and two have another conclusion, right? 10 have the conclusion, we can't do this, right? And two have the conclusion, of course we can, because it's really not us. God will go before us and he will destroy them, right? Now, historically, it's not like they don't have evidence that's a thing that can happen, because right? God has just demonstrated his power for, I want to say it's been a year. right? So for a year, he's constantly been de- demonstrating his terrifying power. So I think so many can understand if God has been, you know, if you're constantly showing your kids okay, that you're, you're, you're trustworthy when you say, just trust me, and you go, okay, boom. You do a thing to demonstrate your, your ability to uh, do what you said you were going to do for them. Okay? You just over and over and over. And you finally go, okay, go in here. And they stop and go, yeah, but I don't believe you. Right? And that is exactly what happened. And that infuriated God. And God says um, here, it's, a, it's a, a quote that Paul, that the author is making. Um, chapter 4, verse 3 says, For we who have been uh, believed enter the rest. Or say, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my anger, they will never enter my rest. And yet God's works were accomplished from the foundation of the world. 
For he has spoken somewhere about the seventh day in this way. And the seventh day is the Sabbath, Sabbath rest. And God rested on the Sabbath day from all of his works. But to repeat the text cited earlier, they will never enter my rest. Therefore, it remains for some to enter it. Yet those to whom it was previously proclaimed did not enter because of disobedience. So God again ordains a certain day. Today, speaking through David after so long a time, as in the words quoted here, Oh, that today you would listen as he speaks. Do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken afterwards about another day. Consequently, a Sabbath rest remains for the people of God. Okay, For the one who enters God's rest, he has also rested from his works, just as God did from his own works. Thus, we must make every effort to enter that rest so that no one may fall by following the same pattern of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing even to the point of divine. So here, this is like a, this is one of the popular, I totally forgot about this one when I was talking last week. Here's another popular verse that likes to get pulled out, and it is jammed right into this context of talking about um, the rest of God. Uh, for it is able to judge the desires and thoughts of a heart, and no creature is hidden from God, but everything is naked and exposed to his eyes, to whom... We must render an account. So if the pattern is to be followed, Jesus is greater than the apostles, Jesus is greater than Moses, Jesus is greater than, than um, the angels, or you could say he, in, in some sense he's a superior form of those things, a superior realization of those things, then you, it is also that Jesus is a superior realization or superior form of the rest. That in Christ... We have rest. In Christ, we have the ultimate messenger, the ultimate, um, as we'll see in a minute, sacrifice. And here, uh, the ultimate high priest. Next, or next, we should say, I should say, he, we have the ultimate high priest, or he is the great high priest. Um, verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, just as the, uh, um, the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confessions. So, the... The author is he's moving through and he's taking these different elements of the of Jewish history and he's going to take the elements of the law and he he breaks them down and he's saying we have something we have something better in Jesus. So we have a better uh, apostles, prophet, Moses, better Moses, better rest. Now we have better uh, priests, right, or priesthood or high priest, and this is where. You know, we get into, and I will talk about it in, in a few weeks, but we get into, not, I wouldn't call it contentious, we'll call it friendly argumentation, okay? Uh, takes place over the next, one of the next, this next concepts that get introduced between, say, five and seven, okay? F- friendly argumentation, right? And one of the things that uh, the author is doing is he is reassuring um, that, he is reassuring the readers that as one part or one element of the Old Covenant is disappearing, because this is what he says in, at the end of chapter 8. He says it's, it's disappearing. As it's disappearing, it's, it's more like it's turning, part of it's disappearing and part of it's turning into a, its greater form. It, it's not just going away to be beaten. Like I've said this before, but it's not just going away to be replaced by nothing. Right? So the, the temple is going away, the physical temple is going to get destroyed, but there is a heavenly temple. 
So if there's no physical temple, what's not happening? There's no sacrifices. And if there's no sacrifices, if there's no rituals, guess we don't need. You don't need someone to, to perform those rituals. It means the priesthood is basically useless at this point. It means no high priest, okay? In the traditional sense, in a Hebrew's mind, right? But it's being replaced by, well, another priesthood, another temple, another sacrifice. So those things are still built into, say, the fabric of reality, but the physical manifestation that they had previously in the old law are now manifest in Christ. And so we'll see, we see in chapter 5 that Christ is, and I'm, I'm just going to pick it up because of time, pick it up because of time. We see in chapter 5 that Christ is a better priest. Okay. Now the interesting thing, or the curious thing, and this is where the, say, friendly uh, disagreements is, um, is, well, what priesthood, right? Is we, we had the Levitical priest. Like, we talk about discussions of, um, say, the prophets, right? Moses is a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. A prophet of what? A prophet of God, right? He, but here, um, when we get to the priesthood, the priesthood of what? Well, or from what? Or from what order, right? Because if, if you're going to be a priest, you had to be of the order of Levite, right? But we see here, we see this interesting... Uh, almost, you might say, out of nowhere, out of left field, okay, we have a different priesthood, okay? And Paul, or the author, establishes this priesthood, and I think, and, and I'm just, I'm guessing, I, I think it's a fair speculation here, um, that uh, all good Jewish boys and girls were brought up learning the Torah, right? And probably had, as many times as they heard it, the Torah fairly well memorized, not because there were no verse numbers, but they, they could probably recite the Torah, okay? And I've, I've read plenty of books, and I'm sure some of you have as well, that talk about, you know, human memory. And when we didn't have uh, technological devices such as books, or even more advanced technological devices such as um, storage, right, that you can just access billions and billions and billions of pictures of cats, right? Right here in your pocket, okay? You didn't have that access. You don't have to remember anything, right? Well, back then, if you had to remember almost everything because writing books, and there was no printing press. So, you know, that kind of thing was uh, uh, taxing, to say the least, especially when you're, if you had to write your letters in stone, okay? Constantly, like... Imagine having to write thank you notes uh, in you know, all your thank you notes in stone tablets to everybody. I'm talking to the halls back there. Um, so, now I went on a little rabbit trail there. Uh, so, Mechilzedek is this new priesthood. Now, Mechilzedek doesn't just drop out of the sky as an idea, right? He exists previously introduced in Genesis chapter 20, 21. Okay, he's mentioned right after Abraham comes back from fighting the five, five armies who, who run off with Lot, right? He gets his, he gets his people together and, they go, and he goes and he, he gets into a fight and he defeats these five armies. And then he's at the city of Salem and he meets the king of Salem, Melchizedek. Okay, a little piece of trivia. 
Which, there was a city right next to Salem. Anybody know what that was called? No? Well, that's the city next to Salem. But you can might say there was a twi- twin cities of Salem and... Huh? Jeru. Right? Eventually, they both grow so big, they became one city now known as Jerusalem. Okay. So, Melchizedek was the king of one half of what would eventually become Jerusalem. He was the king of Salem. Okay? And, uh, well, we can talk about him. We'll get to him more uh, in a couple weeks. But, uh, the discussion is, well, who was this man? Right? Because Abraham gave tithes to him. Okay? And the author here makes a point on that thing. Right? He, he, he says, look, Jesus, or not Jesus, but Abraham, you don't give tithes to somebody who is inferior to you. You tithe to somebody who is superior to you. Right? So when we give our tithes, or I suppose technically we don't tithe, but when we, when we give an offering, we're giving an offering for God right, to, so that the church can do something for the gospel. Right? Uh, when, when Abraham gave, he gave it. It's, the text makes it clear that he is giving it to somebody who is superior, at least in Abraham's eyes, superior to him. And this person was Melchizedek. Now, he is the king of Salem, but he is also, it's called in the text, a high priest of the Lord. Okay? And so now the author of Hebrews, he, 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 calls, he calls Christ a high priest, not just a high priest, but he's a great high priest, okay, in chapter 4. Um, but now, in between 5 and 7, he is saying that he is the greater high priest of a greater order. And part of the argument, or part of the, what, what creates some interesting discussions, uh, is right around chapter 7, verse 3. It says, without father, without mother, without genealogy, he has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but is like the Son of God, and he remains a priest for all time. That's Melchizedek. That's how the author is describing him. Okay. So Christ, is a, he is a better high priest, and he is in a better order than the, than the Levitical order. He is the order of Melchizedek. All right? And he is... As such, that means if, the high, if, if you could condense the, the duty of the priest, and specifically the priesthood, as to down to administration of the covenant, okay, the Mosaic covenant, um, then that means that Jesus is a, a better administer of, of what? I mean, if, if we're going to replace the messengers, and if we're going to replace the great priest, and if we're going to replace, or not the great priest, but the great prophet, if we're going to replace uh, the, the high priest, right? We're, we're not going to do all that, but then keep the same old covenant. Excuse me, keep the same old covenant. And so we get into verse or uh, chapter 8 and 9. In chapter 8, we, we start seeing the replacement of the old covenant with a new superior covenant. In the end, uh, chapter, end of chapter 8, verse 13 says... Uh, when he speaks of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. Now what is growing obsolete and aging is about to disappear. Right? So this is, 
this, all these practices that you have, your ability to, to participate in, Levitical priesthood, all, the, all this stuff is about to be gone. Okay? Now, you could say theologically it's already gone. Right? Once Christ showed up and he paid the, the ultimate, and he was the ultimate sacrifice, right? The Lamb of God. Once he did that, theologically, that was already gone. But the remnants of that, the physical remnants is still hanging around. And it's hanging around on these Hebrews like an albatross, right? Like a, like a millstone around their neck. It is weighing them down. And we talked about this last week in the introduction. Like, the reason why, one of the reasons that was given why the Gentiles didn't have to do this is like, what's the point? You guys can't do it, right? It's why would you place that burden on them, right? So they have this burden. And the author, I think, is, is trying, and part of what he's trying to do is get, help get rid of that burden, Okay, but he has to do it gently, right? So he's he is saying like, look, you know, uh, you're not just giving up the, your, the the faith of your fathers, so to speak. You're you're taking your it's the it's the progression of your faith, right? So the old covenant is fading away. The new covenant, which is not also unheard of, much like Melchizedek didn't just drop out of the sky. The new covenant also didn't just drop out of the sky, right? It's talked about in Ezekiel. It's talked about in Zechariah. It's talked about in Jeremiah, right? The the the, the, the raw material for their understanding is there. Right? So he, he there's a better covenant. Um, and we have, um, say, a better uh, sanctuary. Right? So it's no longer a physical sanctuary. It's on the ground in the form of, well, it's at this point, Herod's temple. Right? That's about to be destroyed. It's a, it's, a temp, it's a sanctuary that is not built by hands. It's in the heavenly places. And that's where Christ is. Like, he was able to enter into the Holy of Holies, not built by hands. And, and as the high priest, sprinkle, sprinkle the blood okay, over the mercy seat for our benefit. That's the, the language that is used. And, his, and it says here he is actually serving in uh, chapter 9, verse 11. But now Christ has come as the high priest of the good things to come. He passed through the greater and more perfect tent. Not made with hands, that is, not of the creation. And he entered once for all into the most holy place, or most holy place, not by blood of goats and cows, but by his own blood. And so he himself secured eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of young cows sprinkled on those who are defiled, consecrated them, and provided ritual purity, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? To worship the living God, right? So, if <clears throat> if the effect of witnessing an animal die for your sins is for you to contemplate your own sin, your own position, like is that that was the understanding? Like this this bird or whatever it was you were sacrificing, goat, bull, um, it was dying because of your sin, right? P- part of that was. To force them to contemplate their own relationship to God, their own their own sin. So, if if that caused that, how much more should our contemplation of the the death, the sacrifice of Christ, have an effect on us? Because Christ is greater than bulls and goats, and he and this is not just. I mean, this is I guess an eternally applicable principle. Right, so I'm not making any interpretive conclusions here yet. Right, this is what Paul just said. These things, okay? He is talking to these Hebrews, and he is saying, "Look, you, 
this concern that you have for yourself, right? Because, I mean, you, you're concerned for your own soul, concerned for your own holiness. You're not giving that up by moving away from the sacrificial system either, right? Because you have the perfect sacrifice by Christ, okay? He, what, the work that he did is better than all those uh, bulls and goats. So all this builds, right? Christ is the... The best, he's the better, he's better than the angels, he's better than the prophets, he's better than Moses, he's better, he's a better high priest in a better order, a superior order, okay? Um, he has, he is the minister of a better covenant, and that takes that administration in the, say, like the whole, the high priest does, it takes place in a better tabernacle, a better sanctuary, in, in the heavenly places, okay? And so, this actually should lead to, um, I'll just say for now, a, a better form of faith, right? So instead of faith in the, in, the, in the bulls and the goats and the law, instead of faith in that, okay, it's now faith in the word, right? The message, particularly the message of Christ and who Christ is, right? And that's really what, you know, I'm condensing now, but this is what, uh, observationally, this is what the author is saying. And we get here to the, the, the Hall of Faith, chapter 11. This is what slides us in to the Hall of Faith of chapter 11, which talks about, which basically says, like, all of these people understood this. They understood this. This is what got them through all that. They had confidence in that. Now, and I'll, and, okay, so finally, um, we'll get in a little more depth in some of these things. And then finally, the Lord's uh, discipline, okay? Chapter 12 is the Lord's discipline. It's, I'm not going to say, we're, we're, this isn't like, and now you have a better discipline. I don't think that's what this is going on here, right? This seems to break the pattern, if you will. The argument here isn't that God has a better discipline. It is that you're about to see something that's going to terrify you, okay? Um, and uh, it's not like the Lord has never disciplined Israel before, okay? So uh, don't quit. I'm, par- I'm paraphrasing again, right? Because I'm out of time. Uh, don't quit. But I'll stop there. Uh, next week we're going to begin another cycle, take a little bit more, a deeper look at some of the the, the concepts in the early chapters. Lord, thank you for the time that we've had together. Uh, thank you for the book of Hebrews um, that was sent to the Hebrews um, that we can learn from and we can learn about the uh, superiority of Christ and the beauty of what it is that he has accomplished, um, that we, we no longer, even ourselves, like uh, they tried to uh, make down in the, the 50 ADs and dealt with the Jerusalem Council, that we don't ourselves have to uh, bind ourselves to the law, um, but simply to the law of faith um, that is in Christ. I pray that we could all hold confident, hold firm to this faith, Lord, that it would uh, pull us through Um, difficult times and pull us through what we might perceive as easy times um, where we can grow in faith and become better servants and better uh, disciples of your son. Amen.